I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, a review of the long-awaited Iowa caucus ending with a not-so-surprising lead. Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump faces a defamation trial after denying the charges. We have the latest. Faith in America. The United States celebrates National Religious Freedom Day. We honor the release of Nicaraguan Bishop Rolando Alvarez. And... Il Signore benedice tutti. Pope Francis responds to the uproar over the Vatican's declaration on blessings for same-sex couples. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Marcellus. Our top story tonight, the race for the White House 2024 with Iowa in the rearview mirror for Republicans. The next stop on the election calendar is New Hampshire. The presidential primary is on January 23rd for both parties. But the question is, do candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley have enough momentum to catch up to the big winner of Iowa, former President Donald Trump. Philip Crowther, international affiliate correspondent for the Associated Press, is live at the Iowa Event Center for us now. Philip, great to have you on. So Trump had a record-setting win in Iowa last night. How did it all play out? Well, it went very, very quickly indeed. In fact, this race was called at 7.31 Central Time, just the 31 minutes after the caucuses began here in Iowa. Why was it called so quickly? Well, because of the emphatic number of votes for Donald Trump in the early counting that happened around this state, but also because of voter intentions that uh, were already known. This led to some rather strange examples of how these caucuses were organized. I'll give you one example of the one I went to in a middle school in the south of the capital here in Des Moines. Uh, that's where people were still waiting to, in fact, hear from the representatives of the candidates. They hadn't yet voted, but already the news had come in that Trump had officially won the Iowa caucuses. Now, it's worth mentioning that turnout was pretty low here this time around. There's a very obvious reason for that, the frigid temperatures outside. But despite all of this, maybe also because of this, Donald Trump got that very emphatic win with 51 percent of the, of the vote, reason for him to celebrate right here in this Iowa event center last night. I just want to thank you all. This is a very special night. And this is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country and truly we do make our country great again. Thank you very much, everybody. Well, trailing behind the former president were the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, and the former, UN, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. They didn't do particularly well. They were trailing a long way behind Donald Trump, but it does give them enough votes, enough of a percentage to stay in the race and to keep on campaigning in the likes of New Hampshire and South Carolina, the next early voting states coming up. Well, Philip, as far as DeSantis and Haley, how are they spinning Trump's win today? Well, a result like the one last night does need quite a lot of spin to make it look relatively good, good for these two candidates. Both of them very reluctant, of course, over the last few weeks and months of this campaign to criticize the former president, Donald Trump, outright. There's a good reason for that. 
They are afraid of losing the votes that they could potentially gain from him. Now, in what they said yesterday in their election night parties, all of them held here in Des Moines, well, they put that positive spin on things. Ron DeSantis certainly did so. Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the United Nations, well, she essentially says that it is time to move on from what looks like becoming a race between two elderly white gentlemen, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Here are Ron DeSantis, but first, Nikki Haley. I was always been a pro-Trump state. We knew that going in. I was thrilled at the fact that we just wanted to come out strong. And the idea that we were able to come out of there strong enough to come into this state was all we needed. Well, I'm the alternative. I mean, you know, she said that the top two were the, whoever came in second to Trump in Iowa was going to be the alternative. She said that was going to be her. It was not. It was me. Uh, we did that. One refrain we hear again and again here in Iowa is that there are only three tickets out of this state, out of the Iowa caucuses, and it's clear who those belong to, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis. Getting off at this very early stop of this long race are the likes of Vivek Ramaswamy, but also Asa Hutchison, the former governor of Arkansas, both of them officially out of the race and suspending their campaigns. Really quickly, Phil, I mean, obviously Trump had a very strong showing in Iowa, but was there any type of weakness for him there? Very, very few. When you look at uh, the, some of the numbers coming to us from the Associated Press, one of them is quite significant. Only a third of voters in the suburbs voted for Donald Trump. That might be something that Democrats might want to look at very closely when it comes to the general election. But when it comes to Donald Trump's result here, it's about his strengths more than anything. He did well in the cities. He did well in the small towns. He did well in the rural areas. He did well with evangelical Christians. And he had a very good ground game here in Iowa as well. That means he had a lot of staff here and a lot of volunteers also here in Iowa. Philip Crowther in Iowa for us tonight. Thank you very much. Well, the Biden administration is reacting to former President Donald Trump's big win in Iowa, focusing directly on abortion and the Dobbs decision from 2022. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, the vice president who's been leading the administration's abortion expansion efforts took direct aim at the former president's role in doing away with Roe v. Wade. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris both responded overnight to the election results. The vice president wrote, Trump just won the Iowa caucus. The same person who recently called the overturning of Roe v. Wade a miracle is one step closer to becoming the Republican nominee for president. The choice is clear. Chip in now to help Joe Biden and me defeat Trump. The president also turning his potential rematch with former President Trump into a fundraising opportunity, writing, looks like Donald Trump just won Iowa. He's the clear frontrunner on the other side at this point. But here's the thing. This election was always going to be you and me versus extreme mega Republicans. It was true yesterday. It'll be true tomorrow. So if you're with us, chip in now. In a virtual White House press briefing today, the press secretary would not speak directly about Trump's win in Iowa, but she still ripped on Republicans. The president is going to continue to fight for the freedoms 
uh, of Americans across this country. We see what they're trying to do, what Republican elected officials are trying to do uh, as it relates to uh, abortion bans and how dangerous that is to women and, and their health. Just recently, on the January 6th Capitol right anniversary, President Biden speaking near Valley Forge went after Trump, warning democracy hangs in the balance in the 2024 election. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past, not the future. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy, put himself in power. The former president, meanwhile, arriving in New York today, a federal courthouse in Manhattan, attending the penalty phase of a civil defamation trial. Trump, who leads all Republicans in 2024 presidential primary polls, is also facing four criminal cases against him. No on-camera events for President Biden today, but we are told that he spoke with Chancellor Olaf Germany, Olaf Schultz of Germany, I should say, about Ukraine and Israel. And tomorrow, top congressional leaders will come here to sit down with President Biden and discuss aid for Ukraine, along with securing the U.S. southern border. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Congress has only four days left to avoid a partial government shutdown. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced a new deal to keep some federal departments open until March 1st and the rest through March 8th. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with the latest. Eric. Well, good evening, Tracy. There's no other way to say it, but here we go again. Congress is up against the clock and lawmakers are not on the same page with passing yet another continuing resolution. Conservative Republicans aren't happy and tell me that they want true budget cuts along with border policy changes. They say that the current agreement is a sellout and they won't support another CR. The House Freedom Caucus took to X and wrote, quote, the House GOP is planning to pass a short-term spending bill, continuing Pelosi's levels with Biden policies to buy time to pass longer-term spending bills at Pelosi levels with Biden policies. This is what surrender looks like. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries says it's more of the same from Republicans. Republicans are engaged in political gamesmanship and stunts because they have no vision, have no ideas, have no agenda, and certainly have no accomplishments to present to the American people. But Congressman Byron Donalds tells me he's not concerned about a government shutdown. The government's not doing its job anyway, so whether it's open or closed, in my view, is largely irrelevant. It's not doing its job. Can we acknowledge that one? It's not doing its job. Democrats aren't yeah. buying it. There are those on the hard right over in the House who think they can bully their colleagues and the House and the country into a shutdown. Amazingly, this band of hard-right extremists actually say a shutdown would be a good thing. Republican Congresswoman Kat Kamak tells me she blames the Senate for not passing spending bills that would have avoided continuing resolutions. So we're going to honor the work that has been done in the House of Representatives. We are going to put a strategy forward that puts us in the driver's seat rather than accepting whatever the Senate does. And while all that is going on, listen to this. House Republicans have scrapped a vote to hold Hunter Biden in contempt. That comes after Biden's legal team made a U-turn last week and said that they would allow the president's son to take part in a closed-door deposition if Republicans issue new subpoenas. So House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan and House Oversight Committee Head uh, James Comer, they decided to do just that. I'll continue to stay on top of that story.
at the Capitol. Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Uh, more than 120,000 homes and businesses were without power early Tuesday as the U.S. battles frigid temperatures and hard-hitting snowstorms. The conditions caused delays for everything from air travel to NFL games to the Iowa caucuses. More than 3,000 flights were canceled Monday and temperatures dropped as low as 10 degrees Fahrenheit in Mississippi and in Tennessee. While well, U.S. Central Command reported forces destroyed four anti-ship ballistic missiles in Yemen today, said to be connected to the Houthi militant group. The group has claimed responsibility for attacking cargo ships on the Red Sea, causing disruption to global trade. In the midst of these attacks, the U.S. military released these pictures. Navy SEALs seized Iranian-made missile parts and other weaponry from a ship bound from Yemen's Houthi rebels in a raid last week. The military also announced two of those SEALs went missing during the seizure. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including religion in America. On Religious Freedom Day here in the U.S., a new study examines whether people of faith feel fully accepted by society. And China responds to the new pro-democracy president in Taiwan. Reported earlier, it was a big night in Iowa last night for former President Donald Trump. But where does this leave him and the race to be the Republican nominee for president? Here with more analysis on the results from the Hawkeye State and a preview of things to come from the Granite State is Matthew Green, politics professor at the Catholic University of America. Professor Green, great to have you back on. So how do you think President Trump's team is assessing last night's victory? And what do you think the Haley and DeSantis, DeSantis camps are thinking right now? Well, I'm sure that the Trump campaign is happy. You know, the the, the Iowa caucuses are, they're a game of expectations, right? There's only less than 2% of delegate votes are decided there. But um, with that in mind, you know, Trump met, if not exceeded expectations, getting over 50% of the vote, which is exceedingly well, uh, exceedingly high for a, a non-incumbent, which I guess in a way he is. Um, you know, DeSantis is probably happy because the polls looked like he was going to be in third and he sort of eked out a second place finish over Nikki Haley, but it was very close. And if you look back a year ago, people were saying DeSantis was going to give Trump a run for his money compared to how he did yesterday in Iowa. Um, I have to say it's probably a disappointment for his campaign. Yeah, and as you know, I mean, a lot of people really went out there. They braved the extreme winter weather to caucus in Iowa, but the turnout was actually the lowest in 24 years. That said, do you think these results, do they really reflect how Iowans think and vote? Well, there's always uh, fewer people going to caucuses than there are eligible voters in Iowa because it's an unusual system where you've got to go out in the evening on a weeknight, uh, show up at a school or what have you, and participate in a debate and cast ballots. Uh, it's an old model of democracy, which is frankly pretty time-consuming. But I do think that it's a, it's a, the point is well taken that the turnout in this caucus versus la previous caucuses was low. And um, I think on the one hand, it could just be weather, um, but it could also be uh, emblematic or symptomatic of a, a lack of enthusiasm uh, by voters for these candidates. And that includes Trump. And so that's something I think all the campaigns need to worry about is whether none of them are really exciting the base, uh, you know, to the degree that they'll need to be eager to vote in the general election.
Yeah, and with a lot of folks heading to New Hampshire, uh, President Trump actually was in a New York courtroom today for the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. And, um, you know, just wondering, is there anything that could trip up Trump's bid for the Republican nomination at this point? Uh, certainly, there are things that could trump up, uh, could trip him up. Um, you know, one is that either of these candidates, DeSantis or well in Hampshire, um, maybe not beating Trump, but um, getting in the 30, 40 percentile, you know, percent of the vote. And then you know, South Carolina, which is a delicate rich state, um, if Trump does not do well there, then I think the narrative changes and it becomes one in which Trump is maybe no longer the favored candidate of the Republican base. I, I, I think Trump, it's, it's his race to lose at this point. Um, it, it's going to be hard to beat Trump, but it's not impossible. It's certainly still a potential. There's still a, a possibility that Trump may not get the nomination. We're going to leave it right there, Professor. Always great to be with you and get your insights. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Officials from China are heavily criticizing the Philippines. This after the Catholic country's leader congratulated the winner of Saturday's presidential election in Taiwan. Beijing warned the Philippines not to, quote, play with fire. This follows the victory of Lai Ching-te on Saturday in Taiwan. He is a pro-democracy candidate who is strongly opposed by China's Communist Party. Following his victory, he said that Taiwan loves freedom and loves democracy. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, tears of joy. The latest on the clergy from Nicaragua, including Bishop Rolando Alvarez, now in Rome. And Pope Francis issues his first public comments about the Vatican document on same-sex blessings. Well, here in the United States, today is National Religious Freedom Day. The initiative began around 30 years ago in honor of Thomas Jefferson signing Virginia's Statue for Religious Freedom on this date in 1786. But a new report says these days, Americans of faith feel less accepted by society. The study from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty finds that only half of the people in the U.S. feel their faith is completely accepted or accepted a good amount. This is 5% lower than last year. Moreover, only 21% of all people of faith in the U.S. say their faith is completely accepted, and 16% say their faith was only accepted a small amount or not at all. Well, the U.S. Bishops' Conference is also addressing the subject. Today, it released its first annual report on religious freedom in the U.S., and it highlights a number of concerns. The church leaders say they are worried about the rise of government resources meant for pregnant women being used instead to promote abortion. They also note the rise in threats to Jewish people and Muslims. And for more, we go to Bishop Kevin Rhodes from the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, and the new chairman of the USCCB Religious Liberty Committee. Your Excellency, thank you so much for being with us today. So why did you and your brother bishops decide to release this report, and what stood out the most to you? I'd say because of some of the findings that you just reported from the Beckett Fund. Um, there are strong cultural forces operating uh, that really work against the time-honored respect for religious liberty that's really been a hallmark of American culture and law. So we try in the report to describe how those forces 
are manifesting into concrete threats to religious liberty here in the U.S. So we call attention to the need for a renewed effort to promote and defend religious liberty. Yeah, and um, Pope Francis says that gender ideology, that is, is a dangerous concept in our society today, and especially for people of faith. Let's talk more about that. And is that addressed in your report? It is. I mean, Pope Francis has talked a lot about, uh, and he uses the term ideological colonization. Uh, When, for example, their aid is money for developing countries, has been tied to accepting contraceptives, abortion, sterilization, and, as you mentioned, gender ideologies. So we do address this. Um, Obviously, we even see this within our own country. Um, There are efforts to try to get our Catholic healthcare facilities or whatever to to do things that go against our teachings, especially in the areas of gender ideology. And, And then, you know, trying to impose that on other countries as well. So we only are treating in our report domestic religious liberty issues, not those abroad, but really some of the things we're dealing with are at the roots of the ideological colonization that Pope Francis talks about. Yeah, and also, uh, Your Excellency, in your forecast for 2024, you mentioned that political divisions are a significant threat, noting the church cannot offer an effective witness to religious liberty if we are beholden more to a political party than to God. Talk to us more about that. You know, religious liberty should not be a partisan issue. We're talking here about um, uh, an issue of a fundamental human right. The right to religious freedom is rooted in the very dignity of the human person. So, But we all can sense that politics has increasingly become a sort of religion of its own here in our country. But our politics right now is one that divides rather than unites. And the path back to a widely shared respect for religious liberty is not through partisan politics, but rather through the gospel and our witness to the gospel. And that's the message that uh, that can unite us. Well, Your Excellency, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. We appreciate it and God bless. Thank you. God bless you too. Uh, Several imprisoned clergy in Nicaragua, including Bishop Rolando Alvarez, have been released by the Ortega regime. The priests, seminarians, and bishops were sent to Rome and welcomed as guests of the Holy See. One confirmed his freedom, adding that several of the clergy were crying tears of joy. The Ortega regime thanked Pope Francis and the Vatican Secretary of State for what it called respectful and discreet coordination that made the release possible. Pope Francis has responded publicly for the first time to questions about the Vatican's declaration on blessings for same-sex couples. The remarks came as part of a wide-ranging interview on Italian TV Sunday night. EWTN News Vatican correspondent Colin Flynn has more. A very good evening, Tracy. In an interview with Italian television, Pope Francis said that he hoped hell was empty. This interview lasted almost an hour, and when the interviewer asked Pope Francis how he imagined hell was, the Pope answered by saying, what I'm going to say is not dogma of faith, but my own personal view. I like to think of hell as empty, 
I hope it's that way. Now, as you can imagine, these comments drew a large and mixed reaction online. And when Pope Francis was asked about the recent controversy caused by the Vatican's declaration that priests could now bless same-sex couples, Pope Francis said that at times decisions are not accepted and that people don't really understand what they are criticizing. He went on to say that the Lord blesses everyone, 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 those who come, every person. When he was asked about what scares him, he answered the escalation of war, saying that the potential for nuclear weapons, that scares me. The capacity for self-destruction that humanity has today. Speaking about the war between Israel and Gaza, Pope Francis said that he talks to a Catholic parish in Gaza every day on the phone. Pope Francis also touched on the possibility of a trip to his home country of Argentina. He's never been home since becoming Pope in 2013 and was recently sent a formal invitation by Argentina's new president. He said that he wanted to go and that he would like to go and that he could possibly do that later this year, but added it was a difficult time in the country at the moment. Finally, when he was asked why he always asks people to pray for him, Pope Francis said, because I'm a sinner and I need God's help to remain faithful to the vocation he has given me. In Rome, Colm Flynn, EWTN News Nightly. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.